0: Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. I hope you are staying safe, healthy and locked down. Uh, Well, particularly in South Africa and many other parts of the world during the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Remember to wash your hands regularly, keep your distance from people and isolate if you can. Um, You can support Voices from SA by becoming a patron via Patreon. Voices from SA. This interview was done remotely, um, in our new circumstances, as it were, and um, yeah, there are some dips in the sound quality, so thanks for your understanding that. I guess this week is Ndoni Bruno. She is a PhD student at the Global Change Institute at the University of the Witwatersrand. Ndoni is also the founder and CEO of Black Women in Science a registered non-profit organization which aims to deliver capacity development interventions that target young black women scientists and researchers. Her PhD is looking at the potential for diversification and scale in small-scale farming, so we had a good chat about the potential and possibilities of small-scale farming versus large commercial farming and um, looked into some of the actions that are required to ensure the success of small-scale farmers, not only in producing a quality product, fruit or vegetable, but also the support and techno- technological support, governance support and other aspects of building a successful business that might be required. She's been working a lot with uh, satellites, um, satellite technology, so we did chat about the use of technology in agriculture also the need to link farmers to the technology and also to researchers like herself. She suggests there's a a gap there that needs to be bridged. And we spoke about her work uh, with uh, black women in science in providing uh, skills, communication skills, etc., to young black women scientists going into and in the job market. Uh, Please now enjoy my chapter 10, Tony. Donnie, thanks uh, very much for joining me this afternoon. Um, we were meant to meet a couple of, or at least well, we, yeah, we we're meant to meet, we, we're doing this now over Skype, adapting to our new reality, as it were. Um, you had a car accident a couple of weeks ago, are you, are you better? Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm much better now, thanks. Good. The scar's it's there, it's not as bad anymore doesn't look as bad.
0: And your car?
1: It's at, um, well, it's still there. They're still fixing it up. Insurance takes its own time to process and they call people and all that. But it should be fine. Oh, well, definitely it's going to take 21 days now.
0: Oh, wow. Well, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. How are you, um, now we're about to go into... Uh, yeah, as you say, 21 days. Uh, the country is locked down. Well, as much I suppose as it can be. What are you all? How are you prepping? How are you? Are you are you good to go?
1: Yeah, I'm good to go. I think I started panicking a while before the lockdown, mm. so um, I started already getting things like your immune system stuff, like your apple cider vinegar and, you know, vegetables and... Apple
0: cider vinegar? Yeah,
1: you know, really, apparently it helps with moving the virus down and cleaning you up.
0: Oh wow, okay. That I had not heard. Um, how are your friends dealing with this whole uh, emergency?
1: Um, I think... There's obviously a panic, and the other day I wrote a post actually saying that, for me, I think the media hasn't really played a good role in reducing the panic, in the sense that it's just telling us daily. Well, when I say media, I mean the South African media, international like your BBC and CNN. They they have a full coverage of the virus, but when you look at SA media, it's mostly about the now the numbers increasing and we have very little experts um, or specialized Mm. opinions or actually screen time. So the Minister of Higher Education, the Minister of Health actually said um, that he works with over forty experts and he actually pleaded with the media in his interview that they also get screen time so that we better understand the virus and the nature of the virus Mm. rather than just Having a panic of numbers, you know, so it, it, can, it could, you could look at that two way, and that's maybe the issue is with us scientists and that we haven't really been very good at communicating our science, but also it could also be the problem of um, we don't have specialists, it's not enough specialists anyway to come speak about this virus um, in terms of South African specialists. You know? yeah.
0: So that's that's. Yeah. That is an interesting point. I've actually, i just made contact with old friends of our family. Um, One of their sons is very much, is is attached to a a health research unit at uh, Litz University and um, I I try to make, well I did make contact with him a couple of days ago, but I just get a feeling that they must be just so swamped right now. But I I hadn't really considered that, you know, there's a lot of talk about hospital beds and and uh, ventilators and yeah, things like that, but actual sort of specialized health care, I suppose, is something that hasn't really been discussed either too. I do It's just
1: been about, we've moved from 220 to 354 or something like that. It's never been, you've never heard it from a virologist. Things like, it just recently came out, I don't know how true it is, about um, the, the virus actually staying in your gloves for eight hours. Mm. I mean... That's,
0: yeah, well, gloves are not a good that's, thing. That's for sure. Gloves should be prohibited. And I saw even cops the other day wearing gloves at a roadblock. And just, like, it's just, it's not... It's not and trust
1: me, that, that's they're going to wear it. And they sold out and all of these things. And I'm saying that we don't understand the nature of the virus. How does it move? How, like, the actual virus itself. Like, how does it die down? You know, I, I don't know. I'm not a virologist. But I would really like to hear from people that are immunologists, virologists that are going to speak on these screens and tell us something different, you know, about the actual virus, not that we're going to die or, you know, 21 days hearing a number increase is going to be very frustrating sitting at home.
0: And are you, are you home alone then now, I mean, or do you, do you live with people or, I mean, how are you going to manage that just as a sort of social being?
1: No, I'm with my partner, and my boyfriend here.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so that's how I'm going to manage it, you know. Um, and your, par- stay your alone.
0: parents, where are your parents?
1: My parents are in KZN. Mm-hmm. Um and my brothers in KZN. My, my older my younger brothers also here in Joburg, but he stays in Santon. Yeah. So you just But a- you know, it's just a different... Okay. Mm, I think for for KZN, it's it's not really something that is. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's 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 that hard hitting in KZN. I don't know. I feel like my parents are a little chilled about it. You know.
0: What you, what is that about? Do you think?
1: Um, I think what is going on is um. I think it's just the case of mindsets. So I think people there are how can I say it um, without sounding some kind of way. but if you are in Johannesburg, you meet uh, you there's more of a drive and there's a push and there's you know like this energy that forces you to work harder, that forces you to to aim higher and all of that. And in case it's really a chilled environment. it's not a it's not there's no rush. So even if you come in with news that are a rush, something that is quick, it's not a quick uptake.
0: Quick it. reaction.
1: It's almost like, yeah, it's not a quick reaction. Yeah, I'll put it like that. It's just the nature of of growing up in Durban. Like when I moved from Durban to come here,
2: mm.
1: it's just crazy how, you know, you'd have like 7 p.m. meetings or, or 9 p.m. meetings or, you know, th- things that are just not conventional to, to the Durban lifestyle. Mm. You know? um, It could also be the fact that I was actually a kid. When I was in KZN, so I can't speak from the perspective of someone that is um, a fully grown person and working in KZN. You know, I I don't know how that experience is, but I know growing up that um, there's definitely a drive that happens. Mm. Um, I did study in KZN, but it wasn't as reactive as here. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's very, very you get motivated, people are very quick, people have ideas, people want to meet, you know, they more meetings, they more opportunities. Whereas in KZN it's very it's more of a more slowed up. pace. That's
0: good. Yeah, I'm really actually, slowed up yeah. me.
1: And actually Yeah, yeah.
0: No, sorry to interrupt.
1: No, not a problem. I'm I'm
0: finished. I grew up in Durban as well, so I know where you're coming from. The, the, yeah, it's not the warm weather and the marijuana is a bad combination for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's it's but, a holiday, man. not something that
2: you
0: it's um
1: but a great place for these kids.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, but there also seems to be even just generally There still seems to be, and I'm talking about internationally, even okay, not maybe in those countries like Italy and Spain where it's like completely kind of locked down. But there seems to be still an attitude from a number of people, even up here in Java and around in other parts of the world, that I don't know somehow they're immune to this or they don't need to obey the rules.
1: It's actually quite sad, and I was speaking to my cousin the other day about. This virus, and that I went to, I went to go get food at Rosebank, and it was just before they announced the lockdown. Yeah, and I could still see people greeting each other with hugs, stopping each other, touching each other, and yeah. playing around with each other. I could still see people sitting in restaurants with their kids. Um, this is now after even the lockdown has been announced. Yesterday, I saw um, a mother with two young boys at Woolworths eating taking them out for a milkshake, and I thought to myself, oh, this is insane. Like, mm. So I think there is definitely a culture that we have of not listening as a society.
2: Mm. I
1: was in Rwanda last year, Kigali, for a conference, and the one thing that I actually saw was that Rwanda is actually way ahead of us. Fine, they may not have all the roads and all the shopping malls as we do, but when I look at the, their mindsets and the way that they behave, they are so ahead of us. So things like drinking and driving, simple things like that, they would never even mm. think about driving, throwing away litter, um, how they treat women and women empowerment. They are way ahead of us, how they do their developments. When you drive around Kigali, you can see that there are intentional rehabilitation plantations that are there, things like your, your trees and your wildlife, your nature is incorporated into how they are developing. Mm. So I ask myself that in South Africa, we actually may have all of these things like we have shopping malls, we have all technology the whatever, things. all the material things, but when it comes to behavior and the way in which we interact, we are way behind in terms of that. And so there's definitely an, a problem of we just don't listen and we do not respect leadership. It could be something that that's maybe our leaders have really just let us down for that long that we don't want to listen. It's almost like a child that has a parent that's not present, you know. And so it's like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. So maybe there needs to be a reevaluation evaluation of how, why is our society not listen, and what role do our leaders have in making sure that we listen, you know what I mean. So it's people, it's going to be a hard thing, you know, things like uh, – I saw that the minister actually yesterday had said, we can walk, we can take a run or jog or walk the dogs. And then within that day, they changed and said no. Yeah. And I, I actually respected that because I thought people are going to end up not walking their dogs or lying and saying they're walking their dog and then they go see a friend because we just don't listen. Do you know what I mean? And I think, yeah, so it's, it's sad.
0: Well, it did show a certain mindset, didn't it? Just that, that the walking the dog became like an issue, you know. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. For me, like, is that your priority And all of this? Your first thought is whether exactly. i be able to go for a jog exactly. or go walk my dog. I mean, exactly. my goodness. Or
2: exactly. even
0: people like having to be without like a, a a helper or a cleaner for a couple of weeks in their lives. Exactly. I mean, my goodness.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's it just shows, one how spoiled we are as a nation and selfish. You know, even simple things like going to the shops. And not getting sanitizer, like honestly, you know what I mean? Like, you could get it, the three that you need. You don't have to take two bags, yeah. you know what I mean? Of it. Yeah. Just maybe we just don't have a, a, it. Maybe it is human nature, but also it is a nature of us just not being thoughtful or un- mm. united for the next person.
0: Yeah. Let's um, get back to you now, Indoni. Um, you are uh, currently uh, at the Global Change Institute at the Witwata Front University and you're uh, pursuing a Ph.D. Um, could you uh, tell us a little about your, your Ph.D. And, and what it entails?
1: Okay, um, so I am doing my Ph.D. and the focus is on, um, in summary, climate change and production. So. I did this course and they it was in science communication and they said, how would you explain your research to a seven-year-old? And so I like to use that sentence and it's, I'm looking at how farmers can produce food, the right food at the right time and at the right weather. And so that's just the, the simple way of saying it. But when you're looking at it in a scientific way, it's looking at the impacts of climate change on food production hmm. so looking at methods such as diversification
2: yeah. and
1: scale so diversification meaning that if you have lots of land are you more resilient to the impacts of climate change if you have one crop such as maize or if you have maize um, spinach cabbage and um, broccoli you know for example yeah. and so theory behind it, it's called ecological security, where it says um, if you have maize, maize's level of resilience to a drought or a flood is the same. But if you have different crops, the resilience of spinach will be different to the resilience of, say, um, carrots. Right.
2: So
1: the point is that if you have these various weather systems that are going to be coming in, your extreme weather that are going to come in, you're not washed out completely. Yes. So we're looking at, the, so the monoculture crop um, is usually done, mono meaning one crop, is usually done by large scale farmers where they have a huge plot of land and one, one crop. They do this usually because of the irrigation system. And then, um, you have small-scale farmers that have these various little crops in their in their little plot of land. Mm. So saying now, if we're saying that your plot will be more resilient or will be more food secure if you have these lot if you have these various crops instead of having one crop, how then do we scale it up? And mm. if we and how and is it possible for us to scale it up with the with putting into consideration the factors of um, land land, and land space, you know what I mean? The limited land that we have currently in our society. Are, are you, so I'm um, Carry on,
2: sorry.
1: Okay, so I'm working with um, a project called the Balmont Forum and it's called Delivering Food on Limited Land and here we work with China, Brazil, India and South Africa.
0: Oh wow, okay, um, so kind of BRICS, BRICS nations of... uh, Yeah,
1: BRICS nations,
0: yeah. So, uh, just uh, give that title again, something on limited land?
1: Um, Delivering Food on Limited Land.
0: Yeah. Um, And so, because I understand, um, I don't know who I was talking to now, Um, one of my previous guests, apparently in South Africa, I'm not sure where your, your study is taking place, your PhD work is taking place, but um in South Africa we have a, a, apart from all the, the sort of political discussions about land ownership there is it seems to be very limited arable land that is good for 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 crops is that is that correct
1: yeah so actually I didn't I ended up not doing my study in South Africa my studies is focused in Zambia um oh. and the reasons why I'm We chose not to do South Africa. is because of those reasons. In that, when I started my PhD, it was 2016, end of towards the end of 2016, and there it was the it was picking up the issue of land um, without expropriation, right? I don't know how to say that. Yeah,
0: land distribution without expropriation, without um,
1: compensation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I would, I would as well say exfoliation
2: without
1: our conversation. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So it, it it really was picking up at that time, and so my supervisor said, you know, the challenge that you're gonna have is that you're gonna find yourself in a legal in a legal debates during your PhD of of land rights, mm. and we were really trying to understand the food um, system and climate change and, and food production. So I didn't focus on South Africa because of that, of those reasons, and um, it's actually quite sad because a lot of there's a lot of potential here, um, given the amounts of small-scale farming that we have, and also just the abilities that we have to access information. So when I went to Zambia for my site visits, I realised how much these small-scale farmers are really just working on very minimal resources, if you know what I mean. Um, mm. We, yeah, they, use, they they are using their indigenous knowledge, their, their local knowledge to do their farming. So,
2: um,
1: yeah, it's, it's sad that South Africa had to become a land. You can't talk about agriculture without getting into the land debate yeah,
0: in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do you think, I mean, what what are you trying to sort of get out of the PhD? Are you trying to sort of Come with some, some model that will guide small farmers in the, the countries that you, that you mentioned? I mean, I imagine that the, the climate and, and um, uh, it's geological kind of uh, – there must be sort of climate and other ch- differences, but I mean, are you looking at sort of some kind of practice in terms of diversification and scale?
1: Yeah, definitely. So the challenge is that um, with African research and with developing countries, that methods such as diversification have not been really uh, scientifically proved, been proven or quantified. There's very little research that says um, diversification is. A way in which we can be more resilient in right. the impacts of climate change. Never mind that um, it's more of an African thing, if you know what I mean, or developing country thing, because we have such because we have so many small scale farmers.
2: Mm.
1: You know, so it's something where there needs to be scientific research to suggest that how can we better use this use method. The that's limited
0: land done, that's available.
1: Uh, that's already being done you know so the issue here is the interesting thing is so like i'm i'm in the midst of my rights up and finalizing an anal- analysis and so countries like india are going small scale india because of the population growth that they have going on they actually are moving towards small scale farming as a way of practice
2: huh.
1: and um us south africans or or African, I don't know, other countries, majority, are actually looking into going large-scale because of the note that large-scale farmers produce more, large-scale farmers have more money, large-scale farmers have higher credits. But when you're looking at it in terms of a climate change perspective or a climate resilience perspective, it's hard to say that because that large-scale farmer, once there's a flood or there's a drought, and I remember in 20. Was it 14, 15 there or 13 to 15 somewhere there? There was a major drought in South Africa where farmers lost a whole lot of um, crops because of it. So large-scale farmers on a drought, their maize is all gone. Um, so the challenge that we have, what we're trying to do is to say, can diversification be a method of practice, of sustainability? And also, um, can we also look at the model of small-scale farming and say is it's how do we keep people where they are, if you know what I mean, but produce more and also be more marketable because of the issue of land and space and developments.
0: It sounds almost, again, a kind of political discussion anyway because, of course, the large-scale farmers in South Africa are mainly white farmers, I would imagine, and they want to hold on to their large. So they will always be pushing an argument that will say – Large um, commercial farming is more uh, productive and um, uh, more food secure than small-scale farming is, right? Without yeah, having yeah. the research to back it up, even perhaps.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's it it is a political conversation. I mean, you can't move away from the politics of it because of who owns the land, and also who's doing the farming and actually making money out of the farming. Mm-hmm. So those are the those are the the, the core drivers of the conversation and the narrative yeah. so we kind of you know hopefully I, I don't know how possible or if it will happen but it's it's looking at how can we make say all of these say 20 small scale farmers into this one big part of land all planting these different crops you know but everybody is gaining uh some kind of profit from it some kind of money from it because I think the challenge that we have is that, one, our farmers, the majority of our farmers are small-scale farmers, and they're not going to, not that they're not out of not no faith, but because of the difficulty of getting these resources, it's going to be very hard for them to get the amount of technology, the yeah. skill, yeah. and the support to move from small-scale to large-scale. So we have to have that frank conversation around that, yeah. and honest in that when we are saying that um, we want to help farmers upscale what do we mean? Why don't we focus on them improving the quality of their crop so that they can play in this market? Yeah. Or, or maybe, I don't know, or maybe just them coming together. But we there's too much pressure on saying to small-scale farmer, uh, produce higher, um, get more land, own more land. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I don't know how, I don't know if, I'm not not being a sour apple, but I just want to look at the practicality of it and see if it's actually something that is feasible. And that's what we want to look at in my research.
0: And I suppose it's beyond just having the product. It's then the access to market, the getting to market, or or just that whole getting into the the, the food um, uh, supply chain, is it not?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, You know, the biggest thing... For me, Nicholas, is to make sure that their product is out of standard. So if you know, the, the potato that you produce, McCain must must want it. You know, and the quality standard must come there. And so if you if you do not get there, that's not they're not gonna make money. And the challenge is we want to make them scale up, but there's no land. So that means they need to stay where they are and produce at a better quality.
0: So it, yeah. so it sounds like you're almost talking about some, almost like a collectivization of small farmers to to to, to become. Yeah,
1: a, I, I, I would suggest that. Um, keeping in mind that I am aware that there have been projects that the government has done in terms of co-ops, women co-ops, where they've had these different small-scale farmers, women-scale small-scale farmers come into one part of land and practice this agriculture. So for me, I think um, it wasn't necessarily the the model that was the problem in that we're saying that different small-scale farmers must come into this part of land and work together. I think the problem became the environment. So things like um, governance, skill, uh, demand, poverty. You know, people became selfish. People became, you know... uh, um, you know, the bookkeeper is now, you know, not telling the rest of the team what, what's going on or they want to keep their money for themselves because the, really the, the resources are limited, you know. Mm-hmm. So before we even start talking about this model of all these small-scale farmers coming into one part of land, we've got to make sure that everybody's right. The governance of it is right. Mm-hmm. How are, how do people, how, how's the trust, how's the loyalty, how's the honesty, how's the transparency, things, soft skills, you know what I mean? That actually need to be developed amongst our community. So things like having the mindset that we're all in this together. It's not just you alone. It's actually a culture that comes from um, things, simple things like the coronavirus right now. You know, people still going out and and you know partying and whatever the case may be. Is is a simple example of the fact that our nature, we need to change it to we're all trying to solve one problem, rather than I'm I'm in this for myself. Mm-hmm. So until we solve those character issues, those those soft skills or social issues within people and communities, we c- cannot. No model is going to go in and work. No model is going to go into the community and work, yeah. work and actually change and make oh. farmers actually produce the food. You know what I mean.
0: Yeah, I think it's also to, as you say, understand all of the components and all the factors that have to be in place in order for that to become, uh, that kind of project to become successful Um, An understanding of, as you say, the skills required at various different levels, the infrastructure required um, and and, um, the, the management required, right?
1: Yeah, the management. Um, it, it can't be something where you pump in money and you tell these farmers, okay, in the next month, send us a, a business proposal or send us yeah. who's in charge of your things. Mm-hmm. It needs to be proper engagement with these farmers, if you know what I
0: mean. And and training it, and guidance.
1: Yeah, and training and guidance. And mentorship, you know what mm-hmm. I mean, Um, into making sure that it doesn't become a survival of the fittest kind of thing, you know, where people are just trying to make it. Mm.
0: It reminds me of a lot of those uh, CSR projects you see where somebody drops off, a company drops off 30 computers at a local high school and just sort of leaves them there, you know, and expects them to sort of take care of
1: themselves. Yeah, you know, they're going to go in and they're just going to, do their own stuff. They're going to go on Facebook, they're going to go on Instagram. So the problem is pumping the money. And a lot of the organizations such as SABS, it's not changed, um, SABS, and um, a lot of organizations have a lot of money in, in trying to support small-scale farming, but they need to understand that the social skills are just as important. Mm, yeah,
0: That's interesting. Can I just um, take a step back a little? I'm just trying to want to talk a little bit about your path into your your PhD. Um, you what did you study um, agriculture or biology or something before you embarked on this? No,
1: I studied I studied environmental science. Okay. And then uh, in my honours, I started to get more interested in agriculture, so my research project started to focus on. Um, an, a company called Wild, Wildlands Conservation Trust in Pretoria, and they worked on green pioneers, waste pioneers
2: uh-huh.
1: and they tried to add business into agriculture. And so, I, I tried to understand that model, and then from there I went into applied environmental sciences and remote sensing, which was um, I focused on GIS and um, satellite imagery
0: in oh, understanding.
1: Precision, basically.
0: What is GIS?
1: Geographic Information Systems.
0: And and what does that mean? What does that entail?
1: So it, it looks at um, satellites. So how, how much can satellite imagery help us understand more of our vegetation, basically. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at, at the time, we um, were dealing with droughts. So a lot of the research was focused on that, and so I was focused on precision agriculture, which look which looks at vegetation and satellite imageries. So I'd I'd use satellite imagery to see how when we see that the plant is dead, like when the plant gets senescence, um, is it really dead? Can we still see some green in it um, wow. for, for food? You know, for wow, for grazing. Yeah. So, so, it actually showed that when we see a plant, when we see that the grass is brown, the satellite is actually telling us that there's still some chlorophyll. Huh. So, of course, it's really at a scale, small scale to master scale. Um, I think if it was a proper research thing, it would have been groundbreaking, to be honest.
0: Yeah. So that would be something perhaps to get back to once you've done your PhD.
1: I don't enjoy satellite imagery. <laughs> <laughs> I, often, I'm out. I'm, I'm still using it even now. I'm actually still using it now. I'm still using a satellite um, called MISA, which is actually a satellite from NASA. And it's only oh, available yeah. at Brits University. Um, and so that satellite, I'm trying to see, it's actually a satellite that tells uh, like clouds and climatic issues. It's not really used for Ground. vegetation.
2: Yeah.
1: So yeah. So we so I'm using it to see how satellites can be able to tell us where are the small scale farmers, where are the large scale farmers, how have they shifted over the years, and also trying to see when we're using satellites in the sense of seeing diversification by seeing a thing called FAPA, which is actually like chlorophyll. Um but the satellite calls it for par, So it's like chlorophyll. C. that's it's so complicated. That's why I do not like satellites. I'm I'm, I'm done. After this, I don't know. I don't know you what I want I'm to see
0: it. a satellite image again.
1: I don't want to see a satellite image in my life. I don't want to see Python. I don't want to see MATLAB. I don't want to see anything that's got to do with coding. I don't know what I want to see. Maybe I just want to be a, a musician and just sing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's we'll talk. Let's talk about that. Um, well, hopefully, this will inspire somebody uh, who listens to to get into your GIS. Uh, take, uh, take up the. Market. I hope they
1: do. I really hope they do for them. I hope for them they do. Because,
0: <laughs> um, but I, I, that's. I mean, that's interesting. It takes us into um, the, the, the 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 technology. I suppose, if we want to call it technology of farming and and. The potential for technology to influence practice? I mean, how do you see that now over the years? How has that changed even in this short time that you've been doing this work, would you say?
1: I think that the technology on culture has really improved. Um, There are things like apps that um, I think they're trying to get started where farmers can see what is suitable, land that is suitable, land that is not suitable, Mm. Um, to detect, um, you know, um, you know, there, there is technology that's out there for farming. The challenge that we have is the access to that technology, mm. and I think we failed to link what is there and what is on the ground. So mm. we have researchers here coming up with great technology in farming, and what, what, whatever the case may be, th- things like detecting that your, sanus, your vegetation is, is starting to die out. Or it's still there, or whatever. You know, it's this is actually a free satellite, but, but someone that's a farmer doesn't have time to go and look for that satellite mm. imagery. Never mind that; it's quite a it's quite hard to download it and to mm. and to do all of that stuff. So the issue is um, how we're making it accessible to the farmers, mm. and also so that we can play around with it more, because now we really yeah. don't know what we have.
2: Because you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Um, we have it on paper don't
0: have it on. And I suppose um, the, the farmers would be an intr- uh, an important kind of feedback loop for, for, for whoever's doing that research it's as well.
1: Exactly. exactly. Um, and so you sit there as a scientist and you you come up with these great methods and these great codes
2: mm.
1: and it's, it's there in a the book, you know, mm. uh, or you your your colleagues read it and they write about it too. Yeah. And they do the same thing and they write about it and everyone is citing each other. But on the ground, there's nobody saying, sorry guys, I think
0: you're you've gone too far.
1: Path. We still don't have data. Yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, yeah. Exactly.
0: Well, you're, you're, you're completely yeah. barking up the wrong tree and actually what we do want is some more information about this, this and this, not that, that and that. Exactly. exactly. Um,
1: and and, and it's, it's kind of, a hard thing to do. And I'm someone who, my PhD has been really scientific, a little bit of social, but very scientific in the facts of coding and and whatever the case may be. But I'm also someone who believes in the social part big time. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, now that I'm at the, towards the end of my PhD, I'm thinking, do I really, is it really fair of me to write up on this, analyze this, and then also at the same time, make sure that it's goes down on the ground there needs to be someone in the middle that's doing this yeah. um, because it's kind of a it's a long job when you when you also have to write the research do the research uh, make sure that it's implemented on the ground I don't know man do yeah. you know what I mean um, the, yeah. not not undermining the impact of it but when you're done you are done it takes so much of, of your energy
0: hmm. you know yeah um, some so sort of interface that would that would um, yeah. impart your Knowledge to the farmers somehow.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. We need we need an interface, um,
0: but
1: mainly because also we're not trained to to make it on the ground. We're trained to answer the question. You know what I mean? And that's what you do. So now when it becomes a implemented on the ground, and I think this goes into the transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary debates. You know. Um, mm. And I was I, I really believe in that type of research. I really, really love it. It's it's groundbreaking, it's amazing. But it's also just a little tricky for the up, upcoming scientist or the emerging researcher in the sense of you're just in between worlds, you know, you're in between the social world, you're also in between the science world, you're also in between, you know, all these worlds and it's it, it can get a lot. So we need someone in between the researcher and the implement and implementing it on the ground.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's um I suppose, I mean, that's kind of the nub of of, of, of that goes to kind of the core of of, of what you are doing, I suppose, because you, you would hope that at some point it would have some benefit somewhere, not for you just to get your PhD, but for, you know, for your own personal gain, but for somebody or some community or a broader sector of the economy, i.e. agriculture, to be able to use your findings in a in a practical way.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um I think it's every researcher's desire, you know, mm. but I look at my supervisor Bob and I and I feel for him. I think really, you know, you have to publish these papers, you have to supervise students, you have to attend conferences, you have to advise, and then you also have to make sure your, your research reaches the ground. It's a lot. It's mm. it's it's a lot, you know, we mm. definitely need Someone to communicate the science to the locals, you know, um, or to, to people, we need a mediator, you know, Mm -hmm. does it mean that maybe interdisciplinary research means the scientist does the research, then your social sciences comes in and says, explain to me what, what you're doing. And they do the research on the implementation. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Instead of actually saying we wear all these hats in one go. It can be quite exhausting, to be honest.
0: Hmm. Sure. I spoke to my one of my previous uh, guests. In fact, the 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 previous episode of the Voices from SA was uh, my guest was uh, Dr. Jackie King. Um, she's uh, an aquatic ecologist. She she um as a researcher, and she's the kind of interface in a way between um. Water infrastructure projects by government and the companies that do that and the communities that are affected by those those projects and she was talking also about the need for perhaps you know engineers to maybe study a little bit more biology or ecology and for biologists and ecologists to study maybe just a semester or two of engineering just so the worlds can yeah. try and understand each other a bit better
1: yeah. Definitely, it's something to do. Um, I, I like the fact that add a module there, you know, in your undergrad. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, huh. But when it gets to the level, well, because then once you do that from foundation, when you applying your solutions to a question or when you're analyzing your data, yeah. you already have this thinking of you know, the social part and yeah. the science part. Yeah, that's you
0: know, it. Yeah. You know,
1: and I mean, also we, yeah. we uh, there's also a dangerous part in, in this in this shifting for me is we, we still don't have enough specialists to now start saying to the specialists, be all of these hats. Do you understand what I'm saying? So things like right now if you're looking at the virologists, now we need virologists, where are they? Do you yeah. know what I mean? So things like your engineers. We still have a very little number of engineers coming out of our high high education system. So it's kind of tricky because I always, I'm definitely someone I support transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary in a very strong way. But also I'm, I think we must not move away from the importance of having the core specialized. Yeah. The core. We still need the core. I'm confusing it a lot because of the fact that we, we we're not like ex- over exceeding like your USA or whatever countries that have these kind of specialists just on the on the waiting list. You know, we're still mm-hmm. trying to get those numbers up.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I kind of muddied the waters a bit. Uh, you know, we were talking about you were talking about sort of how the research can sort of trickle down to the the the, the 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 sort of end user, I suppose. And I was just just commenting on the fact that you know the researcher themselves also needs to kind of wear those hats that you were talking about and just find a balance between all the worlds that they're kind of working in. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, your, uh, do, do I call it an, uh, an NGO, uh, yeah, Black, Black an NGO. Woman in Science? Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: an, an NPO, I think you call it. Um, can you just talk a little bit about Black Woman in Science, what it is and how it came about?
1: Okay, um, so it really was a personal journey for me starting black women in science. It's was gaps in which I saw within myself and within the system. Um, I had I was at the time doing my masters, I had just finished my honors and I was doing my master's and I and I realized that um, it's actually it's actually quite a it's quite a lonely process and it's also something you really don't know what you're getting yourself into. Hmm. So I started questioning myself, around why is it that I don't know, you know, what is this degree and what can I do with it? It sounds good, but, you know, um, I'm doing it because I really have no responsibilities or, or, or anything that's saying to me, go work. Um, and also no one was really saying, come work either. So you end up doing... Your studies, and I thought, okay, cool, yeah. Let me currently do my master's, and then um, I I realized that I also had never been lectured by a black woman. Um, although at the time I was at UKZN, and there was a high percentage of black students, mm. so um, I I found that concerning.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, I then started realizing how there's so many skills that I do not have. So I started an NGO. And I realized that I need to have marketing skills. I need to have strategy skills. I need to have communication skills. And these are skills that I'm not taught as a scientist at all. I'm taught to just analyze and publish um, data. And so I started Black Women in Science based on my own challenges in that, um, you know, you're a scientist, but you don't really know where your research goes and nor do you care, nor do you ask, you know, because no one is really telling you. So we then started to incorporate business training into our NGO and science communication training, as well as scientific writing training. And these are the core challenges that I found during my process of getting my PhD. So we said, okay, so you get trained in university and everybody says, you are what is needed, you're what's lacking, there's not enough of you. But then when you go into the real world, you actually don't, you're not equipped at all as a scientist to, to be in this real world. And also I think there was a high limitation into what we can do. So the NGO targets postgraduate students that are black females, um, not students, anyone that has a postgraduate degree that could be working, but you have you have to have had your undergraduate degree
2: mm.
1: and we provide training for those three core um, topics, your right. business and entrepreneurship, your science communication, and your mm-hmm. scientific writing and publishing. Mm-hmm. And these are all things that limit people to, to take in research careers. Mm-hmm. And, and they also make them kind of start a project in their community or as a business to register it within their uh, fellowship and they implement it in different communities.
0: Yeah, that sounds absolutely I mean, brilliant and, and amazing. Um, but I suppose, I mean, it, it comes, as you say, those challenges that you were sort of coming to the realization that throughout your, your studies, the, the, the your university or research experience have not really equipped you for the real world as such. But it also, I think, points to a sort of, uh, confronting a kind of level of discrimination as well is that is that correct
1: yeah definitely uh, um, you know a lot of the focus and where the government is really focusing on is let's get our high school learners to get into universities and study their their degrees and then and then and then what, when they when they're in oh that's perfect they're in if you know what i mean
2: mm. there's
1: very little be- done to make sure that they stay in the system. And that's and that's why Black Women in Science in that you're going to face the same problem you have now with the lack of students going into university in science degrees as much as you're going to have the same problem of them staying in and becoming your professors and your lecturers in the mm-hmm. university. Yeah. So it's, it's something that they call the leaking pipeline. And we are really trying to say this discrimination is still continuing because you are saying that we are all that you you need us so much. We are your targets, we are your goals, but you're not actually understanding what we what we're missing and what we what we need, if you know what I mean. And and what we're saying is making us leave. It's almost like survival of the fittest. Once you're in the university and you're doing a science degree, you know, and and then when you get out, you realize actually I want to get into the corporate sector and the corporate sector is not telling you to reference. They're not telling you that. They're asking you about strategy. They're asking you about, um, mm. you know, teamwork. Oh. asking you about, you know, report writing. They're not asking you about what is the formula for whatever, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And then people get frustrated. So we're trying to read the gap almost, fill the gap of, of that frustration that Black students, especially especially black females, are feeling.
0: Hmm. And I suppose to uh, try and establish a core of of black women science mentors as well for a new generation coming through. I mean, you're very young yourself, but there will be. Yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's it's very hard, Nicholas. It's not uh, doing this is hard, and 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 it's not because um, it's not doable. It's because it's never been done. And so we, it's kind of, kind of like winging it, We're kind of learning along the way, you know, to understand that a simple thing like this, like we get approached um, a lot by media houses like Your Mail and Guardian, SABC News, SAFM, to have these scientists to come forward and to speak up about, about different issues, things like when the lotus, um, when there was an outbreak of locust, sorry, um, disease, in Kenya, you know, all of those things, and they approach mm-hmm. us. So the instant thing is that the media industry is very quick. You know, things like if I go to the, to, to SABC for an interview, when I went there, it was the corona, was the first day the coronavirus came, it was the breaking news mm-hmm. that the coronavirus is in South Africa. And I was in the studio for an hour and a half, waiting to be interviewed by Pete Tandoro. But as a scientist, because our nature says, no, you need to read and understand yeah. and write. And <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? Then you know, once you write and you have your paper, the media industry is not like that. They'll, they'll call you now and say, "I need a, I need an interview at one o'clock."
2: And, they need and
1: working book. with, and they need you then, and and you're working with scientists, by the way, that have no, you know, you're trying to expose them. You're trying to make have have them. Have a voice, let them to have a voice in these issues and get an expert voice. But also you I I never took into consideration that these are scientists. That you need to you need to tell them, guys, are you gonna be available on Friday for an interview on the coronavirus? And then they're gonna go analyze it and read it yeah. and break it down. We well, actually they just want you to talk for that minute or those two minutes. They want you there. So for, simple for, things
0: for two minutes.
1: Two minutes. You don't you don't need to take a whole flipping questionnaire of what time, where I'm, just say I'm available, where is the interview and go there. And so simple things like that, where it's been very hard because now you're trying to bring out these scientists into the public eye so that they can have these voices so that we can change the discrimination. But at the same time, they're still scientists and it's hell because you have to be like, are you available? Oh no, I have a deadline. Can the, can the interview be tomorrow? I'm like, tomorrow tomorrow's another new. It's a new day. It's a new. It's a new topic. It's a new news. You know what I mean. So it's very hard um, to get it out there, but it's it's something that we're trying to do.
0: Um, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about mentoring um, and the importance of mentoring. Do, do you visit schools and things like that as well?
1: No, we do not. Um, but we do partner with organizations such as the National Research Foundation. And they have um, like Science Week, if you know uh, the National Science Week. Right. Our girls are they throughout that. So there's organisation called Guy Edge Propellers that work with over four thousand high schools learners, and they teach them business skills and all of that. Mm-hmm. And our girls are mentors. so we don't go there ourselves, but we partner with organisations to to do it. Yeah.
0: Because I mean, I was just struck by what you said about you were you were not you had no um, black lecturers now when you were doing your um, undergraduate studies in particular. Um, is that something that you could think about? Would you see an academic career or something for yourself? Or? Oh, oh,
1: oh, oh! Right now. I know you wanted <laughs> to go and make
0: music, but I'm sorry to burst that bubble. <laughs>
1: Um, I think I, I definitely would. I know I would be in it. I don't know if I would like to stay in it right now. Mm. I know I want to end up. It could be something where I come back to maybe after ten years or fifteen years of being out of it. Yeah. Um. But I do want some kind of experience in the private sector world, mm. corporate world, um, just to see what else how I can stretch my brain in mm. other sectors. But then, um, I do not mind doing things like visiting a visiting lecturer, like to, to lecture a specialized thing. Like, you know how they have courses and then maybe they'll have ecology and sustainability. And mm-hmm. I come in and do that because of my experience of the real world. Yeah. If you know what I mean? I do feel like academia, academia is very academia. You know, it needs, it needs you to go into the real world a bit and just to feel it a bit and to compare what you're reading and writing to what's actually going on.
0: Um, so, what what, what you, you, you're you coming to the end now of your PhD, and so then what happens next for you? I actually don't
1: know. I actually don't
0: know. <laughs> do you, when you said you um, want to go and I, make music, I mean, do you, are you a musician <laughs> as
1: well? No, I'm I enjoy music. I really enjoy music. Mm. But no, I'm not going to make music. I don't think... I, I, I think it will be a part-time thing. Mm. But um, I don't even know how to make music, first of all. <laughs> but I enjoy listening to music and, and attending stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. And I think I'd really like to... I'd really like to be very open about my journey after my PhD, because I don't think it's there's enough honesty or transparency in, in this whole process. With um, the PhD, so um, what do, what do the one thing that, I've
0: what do you mean by
1: that? I mean in the sense of um, I don't know. Maybe I really think maybe I was just naive, you know. I always there's this article that I wrote at the, for the conversation where I say that I I felt it's almost like I fell into my PhD. I didn't choose, like
2: hmm.
1: you know how nice it is to choose that I want coffee over tea or I want. To stay in South Africa versus I want to stay in America. With the PhD, it's like you just get into it because it's the only opportunity. Jobs are scarce, and you you're not. Looks like something you've been doing anyway in these years, and you do it because you don't have responsibilities, and everyone keeps telling you it's a, it's a really good thing, you know, for you to have. So, but there's no understanding of what does it mean. What am I saying? And what you're saying is. You are in academia and you're in research. You're, you're gonna write. You're gonna publish. You're gonna stay in in um, academia, and I don't think that is something that I want to be stuck in. Mm. I would like to explore what else I can. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think when I say there's no transparency, there's no real understanding of what what does what does a career in research and academia mean. I don't think. I don't think people know that until maybe doing their masters. And I think that's how we get them out of the out, how we lose them from the system is because it's not even looked at as a career, it's looked at as you're students and you're doing your you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Without, without being aware that actually when I when I have my doctorate, I have I'm a I'm a doctor in this thing and in, in the academic language I have this month of years of experience. Do you know what I mean? Over corporate world where I have zero experience. Mm-hmm. So it's it's two worlds that I am interested in exploring as to how do I um, get out in in an, in the nicest way, you know, get out of academia after yeah. my PhD into another field,
0: and sort of somehow still t- stay in touch with that world at
1: the and same time. stay in touch with the world exactly. I would, yeah. I would definitely don't want to lose my academic hats. It's something I've yeah. I've done for twelve years. You know, I definitely do not want to lose it. It's something that I really want to stay in it. But I also feel like you add more contribution if I am outside of it and I'm coming in with my experience and I'm saying, hey, guys, I know this is how you read and write and analyze. Maybe we should change it up like this because um, the job market is looking for students that are doing this now. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just the whole world. Um, Mm -hmm. So how do I stay in research but not in an institution, in a way, you know, right. stay in it in, in a in a private sector. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, or get that, or in a
1: corporate sector.
0: Yeah, get that corporate yeah. kind of experience, and it, but at the same oh. time, be able to use your academic uh, training for that.
1: Yeah, somehow exactly exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's possible, Nicholas. I actually don't think it is. Um, it's very hard to get out, but I'm gonna try. I'm actually, gonna
0: try. It sounds like you're a person who could probably make it possible. Oh, uh, yeah i don't know <laughs> I just wanted before you go um okay. well i just i just would like to because it's not we've been running a bit out of time um you know your 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 phd is touching on the impact of climate change on agriculture and I'm just trying to get an well just like to get an idea from you how you understand how the government in particular or the government and business in this country are confronting the, the global uh, crisis that is climate change?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we, when I had that interview with that panel thing with Greta, um I had not actually understood how much we do not have a voice uh, internationally with regards to climate change. Are they responding? I don't think they. I don't think they're doing enough. To be honest with you, um, and when I say they're not doing enough, I mean in the sense of actually understanding what it means for Africans. Not 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 the international, um, you know, terminologies that we use for climate change and adaptation and mitigation. What does adaptation mean and resilience mean for Africans in the context of we are de- we are developing as a continent. We do not have technology. We do not have skills. We have a we our literacy rate is different. Mm. You know, um, all of these things for me tell um, say to me that it's very good in PayPal what they write in terms of the legislation or the policies around climate change, but it's not tailor made for Africa. It's not tailor made for Africans. It's things like Nicholas. When I speak about diversification, where I'm saying that our farmers are doing this on the the ground. It's an African thing. We are doing it on the ground. It's an indigenous knowledge thing. Mm. But because it's an African thing, it's it's only going to to take someone international to come in and say, oh, wow, diversification is a way. And then it's, oh, it's diversification. And then we lose credit again on on things like that, you know. Mm. So we should be saying, "Okay, what are farmers doing on the ground? What are the projects that are already on the ground? the NGOs that are struggling, the NGOs that are not supported or that are running basically from hand to mouth, Mm. and we're saying, how can we scale those up? Is it possible to scale? For me, that's looking at solutions that are African made, because we're not saying, oh my gosh, it's climate change, bring in technology. What are you doing, America? What are you doing? Then they bring it in. No. Why don't we start at home and say, what are the organizations that are on the ground that are struggling? What have they been doing for the past 10 years? What are the locals doing? How do we scale that up? How do we study this better and at, improve yeah. this kind of what they're really doing? Do you know what I mean? Because they, we are surviving as Africans, but the problem is we're not acknowledging our own methods enough.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and Ndoni, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Nicholas.
0: And... Um, Well, yeah. All the have a happy, have a good, solid three weeks at home.
1: Definitely. (laughs) No, I'm gonna write.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's a good opportunity just to sit tight. Take care. All the best, and um, I I look forward to following the next steps in your career.
1: Thank you so much, Nicholas.
0: certainly wants to at least keep her research relevant and keep at least one foot in the academic and research world. Um, I think she raised some interesting points about research and academia in general and gave some idea of how universities sometimes do not equip young graduates for some of the life skills they need beyond the subjects, uh, particularly in research, that they are um, focusing on please become a patron and help keep this project alive with your support the podcast can travel to all corners of south africa and beyond thanks again to hindenburg for their support hindenburg software is designed for radio journalism and podcasting and is practical and easy to use go to hindenburg.com for more information and sign up for a free trial you may subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, these are indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.